Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for your incredible grace. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of surrender, for your work in us to enable us to surrender, to give ourselves wholly to you. Father God, I pray that you will teach us. Teach us this afternoon, Father, in both of our hearts and in our minds, so that we can live, understand the Christian life better. We pray for these things. We thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to share with you as we start this overview of surrender, a parable about the city gates. This parable is about this, this little city that was situated on the bottom of this long, steep valley. And it was a beautiful place for the city to be situated. The, the, the fields were fertile. It was peaceful. It was a wonderful place to live. There was only one problem with this particular situation, and that is whenever it rained up in the mountains, the rain would come sluicing down this funnel-like valley, and it would actually inundate the little city at the bottom. Well, the next day after this happened, the people would come out and they'd get their brooms out and they would sweep the sidewalks and, you know, things got back to normal fairly quickly. And it wasn't that big of a deal. The problem is, is that people began to discover this beautiful valley and they began to build more cities higher up the mountain, higher up the valley. And that wouldn't have necessarily been a big problem, except that in those days they kept their garbage dumps on the outside of the city walls. Huge piles of stinky, filthy mess. And so when it rained in the mountains, guess what happened? That rain came sluicing down the valley and it picked up this garbage. And it drowned this poor little city at the bottom with this stinky, filthy mess. The next day after this happened for the first time, the people came out and they could barely keep their breakfast down. It smelled so terrible. Well, they said, we're going to have to do something about this. So they put... Uh, clothespins on their noses, and they started scrubbing. They used the, the latest technology scrubbers and cleaning solutions, and they tried to get this mess cleaned up, but it wouldn't clean. It was so sticky and so yucky, it would just cling to the surface of the sidewalks and the houses, and they couldn't get it up. Well, around this time, a traveling cleaner came to visit the city, and he says, I can clean your city for you, and I'll do it for free. Well, the mayor of the city said, I don't think you'll be able to. We've tried everything. But you're, willing, you're, you're welcome to try, and we can't beat the price. So this traveling cleaner came in, and miraculously, he was able to clean. He would scrub away, and by the time he got done, it was better off than when it started. Miraculous cleaning ability. And the, cities, the citizens were, were so happy because now they had a solution to this terrible problem. And the uh, cleaner got about halfway done with the city when it rained again in the mountains. And guess what happened? The rain came sluicing down again, picked up all that filthy garbage, and once again inundated that whole city with a stinky, filthy mess. Well, the cleaner said, no problem, I'll start over again. So he went back to the beginning and he started cleaning the city. This happened several times, and each time he would make some, start making some good progress in the city, the flood would come and undo all the good work that he had been trying to do in that city. Well, the uh, uh, mayor of the city and uh, his council got together and they said, we've got a problem. We have this incredible, miraculous, supernatural cleaner working in our uh, city and he's making good progress until the floods come and then it just undoes all of his stuff and he has to start all over again from the scratch and we're really not making any progress. So what can we do? What can we do? What, what practical thing can we do to help the cleaner out a little bit? 
So after several hours of mostly useless ideas, one sage old man stood up and says, let's close the two city gates in the front of the city so all the water will go around and it won't flood our city again. Well, they said, that's kind of radical. I mean, two of our seven city gates, that's, uh, that's going to be a little bit of a pain. It's going to be a hassle. How are we going to get in and out of the city? All of our trade and commerce is going to have to be rerouted through the other five gates. But at the end, they said, well, it's worth it. If we can get this flood under control, it's worth it. So the next day, they got out there with all their um, pry bars and all their chains and all their strong men, and they, they barely got those two gates closed. They hadn't been closed for a long time. But they got them closed, and the city lived happily ever after. Well, actually, not. Because the next time it rained, the rain just came swirling around the city and came in the side gates. And once again, they were just as bad off as before. So, so gate after gate, they kept on closing the gates, the side gates, until all they had left was one little open gate at the back of the city. And they said, surely now we can have victory over this problem. But you know what? It didn't help. The water just swirled around and came right through the back door and inundated that entire city with its stinky, filthy mess. Well, about this time, the citizens of the city were getting a little bit upset with their leadership for failing to find a solution to this problem. And so the mayor called a, a grand meeting of the entire uh, uh, people of that city and said, OK, we've tried. We've done all these things. We've, we've closed most of our city gates. What more can we do? And after several hours of mostly useless uh, ideas, one little boy stood up and he says, why don't we close that last city gate? Well, after the laughter died down, the mayor said to the boy, I'm sorry, we didn't mean to laugh at you. We just can't help it. But I mean, how can we possibly close that last city gate? I and mean, what would we do? How would we get in and out of the city? We'd have to build ramps over the walls. We'd be the laughing stock of all the other cities nearby. We can't close that last city gate. In fact, the mayor said, closing the city gates has not really helped at all. And it's caused us a lot of problems. Let's just open them all up again. So that's what they did. The next day they got out there with all their pry bars and all their pulleys and all their ropes and all their strong men. But they didn't need it because it was just a little tap. And the gate swung right wide open again. After a couple weeks, the mayor called the cleaner into his office and he said, you know, we really appreciate all that you've done for our city. You have done miraculous things for us. But it really in the end isn't making any difference. And so we've decided we don't need your services any longer. And besides, the mayor said, it really doesn't smell that bad after all. Isn't that a tragic parable? And yet, that's what happens to us in the Christian life. These open gates represent unconsecrated choices in our life. And if we leave just one little unconsecrated choice open to the devil, he will come in, and he will undo much of the good work that God is trying to do in your life and mine. Jesus is ready and willing and able and eager to work miracles of conversion, of transformation in your life and mine. But we have to let him. We have to let him close every city gate so that the devil cannot get in, not even by the smallest crack. Unless Jesus comes in and takes possession of the heart, Unless self is subdued and Christ exalted, we shall not prosper as a people. You would think that we would gladly let God close all the city gates. You would think that we would gladly let him work unhindered in our life to cleanse us and to transform us. You would think, but that's not exactly what happens. In fact, naturally, we want those city gates open. Naturally, we are attracted to open city gates. Naturally, we fight God as he, as he tries to get us to close those gates. Naturally, we resist his will. 
This is our broken, sinful nature. We call it the flesh or self. This thing that we inherited from Adam that makes us naturally resistant to God's perfect way. Paul proclaims the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We see this devastating effect of the flesh in the story of the rich young ruler. Here was this young man who wanted salvation. He wanted it so bad that he was willing to do almost anything to get it. Almost saved. Almost anything, but not quite any, everything. And he ended up walking away from the Savior because he was not willing to let God have all of his life. That's self-talking. That's what self does to us. Self is the root of every spiritual failure in our life. Self is why we say hurtful things to people we love. Self is why we spend time and money wastefully. It's why we criticize others and are jealous of others. Self is why we eat unhealthy food even though we know it's bad for us. Self is why we do every selfish thing in our life. Self is the problem. That is why we are told that self is the enemy we most need to fear. No other victory we can gain will be so precious as the victory gained over self. My friends, that is so true. Self is the enemy we most need to fear. The devil's the conquered foe, but self is the enemy we most need to fear. Self keeps us from letting God be Almighty God in us. We are truly our own worst enemies. So, whatever it takes... Self has got to go. Self has got to be conquered. And we know that we can't do it. We know that only God can do it. On April 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston was walking through the Blue John Canyons in Utah. And he was climbing over these boulders and these very steep and narrow canyons. And as he put his hand on one of the boulders to get some leverage, he actually slipped. And the rock rolled over his hand and pinned his hand to the canyon wall. And for three days... Aaron struggled to get his hand free. He tried to pull it out, but he could not. He tried to shift the boulder, but he could not. He tried everything he possibly could to separate himself from that rock, and he failed. At the end of three days, his food and water were gone. He had no hope of getting free. He uh, took out his pocket camera, and he recorded his last will and testament, his last message to his family, and then he sat down and prepared to die. But you know, Aaron Ralston did not die because as he sat there, an idea, an idea came to mind about how he could separate himself from this flesh that was pinning him to this earth. He took out his dull pocket knife and he began to cut away at his hand. It took him an hour but he succeeded in cutting his hand off. The pain was so unbearable that at times he would actually almost pass out. But as he came back again, he would say, I'm that much closer to being free. And he kept on cutting away until he was able to separate himself from the flesh that was pinning him to this earth. My friends, you and I, in the same way, have flesh that is pinning us to this earth. And it will kill us. Unless we get free of it, it will kill us. Jesus said in Matthew 5.30, if your hand caused you to stumble, what? Cut it off. That's right. Jesus was not telling us to mutilate our bodies. What he was telling us was that no matter what it takes, whatever it takes, let God do whatever it takes to separate you from the flesh that is pinning you to this world. 
Self is the enemy we most need to fear. Everyone who enters the pearly gates of the city of God will enter there as a conqueror, and his greatest conquest will have been the conquest of self. Self is the enemy we most need to fear. Self is the problem, but there's some good news. The good news is that there is a cure for self. It is called surrender. Surrender is letting God conquer self in you and I. Self is too strong for us. We cannot possibly conquer self. In fact, we like self. Self is intertwined around every fiber of our beings. We are addicted to selfish choices. We cannot fight self in ourself. But God can. He's willing and able and eager to do so, but we have to let him. And that's what surrender is. Surrender is letting God close all the city gates in the citadel of our life so that he can come in and work all powerfully in us to cleanse us and transform us without any of the devil's effects in our life. So, there are many good definitions for surrender, but let's try to define it very quickly. You've heard one of my favorite definitions several times so far in this series, and that is, surrender is letting God be Almighty God in us. It's getting out of God's way and letting Him sit on the throne of our life so that He can be Almighty God in our life, in us and through us. Another one of my favorite definitions for surrender is drowning in the will of the Almighty. Drowning in the will of the Almighty. And one reason why I like this definition so much is because naturally we as human beings like to drown, right? I mean, it's easy and pleasant to drown, right? No! No, we fight drowning with every bit of our energy. We fight it with all of our nature. We fight drowning. And yet drown we must. We must drown in the will of the Almighty God. Let Him have our choices in every aspect of our life. Another uh, good definition of surrender, and perhaps a more complete one in some ways, is this one. Surrender is a spirit-inspired, spirit-enabled, settled commitment to give God all of our choices in every aspect of our lives all the time. There are several things I really like about this definition. One, it highlights the fact that surrender is spirit-inspired and spirit-enabled. In other words, only God can do it. Only God can help us to surrender. But by our power of choice, we have to let him. And we can let him, by that power of choice, surrender us to him. I also like this definition because it highlights the fact that it is a settled commitment. Surrender is not something you do on a, uh, usually on a spiritual high. It's not just a flight of feeling. Surrender is a settled commitment. When you make that hard-fought, hard-won, hard-won um, uh, surrender decision, it sticks. It's a settled commitment. In fact, surrender is probably not best done during a spiritual high. Surrender is best accomplished when we are stone-cold sober emotionally. When we, we know we've counted the cost, we know what we're getting ourselves into, and we say, Lord, I'm willing to let you do it, no matter what it takes. I also like this definition of surrender because it highlights the fact that it's all of our choices in every area of our life, all the time. That's what surrender is. You know, one reason I think that it's so, so difficult to understand surrender sometimes is that surrender is both an event and it's a process. And that can be a little bit confusing. S surrender is an event in that at some point in our life, we must make that hard-fought, hard-won commitment to say, Lord, okay, I'm going to jump off the cliff into your arms. I'm going to die in your will. I'm going to let you be Almighty God. I'm going to give myself wholly to you, give you my life, give you my choices, give you my will, give you my all. That's the event of surrender, where we make that commitment. 
but it's also a process in that we will be continually having to die to self, to die daily, to let God continue that work of surrender in our lives. And it's also a process in the sense that God will continually show us new areas in our life that we had not even realized before that we were resisting God a little bit. And he'll show us that resistance and he'll say, you need to surrender that to me. And we say, okay, Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I was resisting you, but I surrender it to you. He will then give us the victory over that area. And he will continually show us these areas where we are resisting him until he can perfect that surrender in us. You know, surrender and marriage have a lot in common. They both have an event and they both have a process, right? The marriage event is the wedding ceremony where two people who love each other, stand up at the altar of God, and they commit themselves to each other 100% until death do they part. But we also know, for those of you who are married, that, surrender, that the, the, the wedding ceremony is not the end of the wedding, of the marriage, right? That's, that's the beginning. In fact, sometimes, in some ways, the hard part is yet to come. There's still that process, that process of growing in love for each other, that process in growing in teamwork, learning how we, each other works and working together well. And that can be, in some ways, a, a, a real challenge as well. But I want to make an important point, something that I didn't understand most of my life, and that is... Yes, surrender is a process. Both marriage and surrender are processes, but neither marriage nor surrender is a process in the sense that we commit adultery less and less. Isn't that true? Neither marriage nor surrender is a process in the sense that we commit adultery less and less. If I were to stand up at the altar with my bride-to-be and I was to say, honey, I love you, and I commit myself to you 80%. How well do you think that would, that would go over? No. Any woman worth marrying would be finding the nearest exit. And as she was running out of the church, if I said, okay, okay, 90%, would that help? No. It is a 100% commitment, all or nothing. Neither marriage nor surrender is a process in the sense that we commit adultery less and less. Surrender is all or nothing, and it's all at once. What do I mean by that? If God is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. That's the way the Christian life works. God has to be all, in all. If God is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. We do not belong to Christ unless we are his holy. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that life-changing? It was for me. We do not belong to Christ unless we are His holy. Most of my sincere Christian life, I misunderstood surrender. I thought surrender meant that I would give myself to God in most of my life, and I would give Him my, especially my worst sins, right? My one or two worst sins. I would say, Lord, I need your help on this. Please take care of these sins for me. And then He would work on those, and He would take care of them. And then I would give my other two worst sins, and He would keep that process. I thought it was a process of, of giving God a little bit of my life, a little bit of my life, but that's not how it works at all. Surrender is all or nothing, and it's all at once. Unless God closes all those city gates all at once, he cannot do that work, that miraculous work of cleansing in us without the devil coming in and undoing a lot of the good that that he's trying to do. And that's why I failed to surrender, because I misunderstood the total 100% commitment of surrender. And this is common, even in the church today. We are told that many, so many who assume the name of Christ are unsanctified and unholy. They have been baptized, but they were buried alive. Self did not die, and therefore they did not rise to newness of life in Christ. You've heard me say this several times. Resurrection power is only available to those who die. We have to die in the arms of Jesus. Take that leap of faith. 
we cannot leave even the smallest crack open for the devil, because if we do, he will slither in and he will undo the good work that God is trying to do in our life. Someone once made the startlingly obvious statement that large canyons are not crossed by a series of small jumps. Is that true? Large canyons are not crossed by a series of small jumps. Imagine if you would, this guy here on the cliff, he stands up and he says, I want to cross this canyon. And so he makes his first small jump. What happens? Splat, right? It's all over. You cannot cross the canyon that way. If you're going to cross this large gap, you're going to do it by a leap of faith. It's the only possible way. A hundred percent, all or nothing, leap of faith. Now, I'm not talking about perfect surrender immediately. Perfect surrender is the work of a lifetime. What I'm talking about is wholehearted surrender, unresisting surrender. In other words, there is not even one area in our life that we knowingly resist God. We're not holding back from Him. Not even one area of our life. Let none deceive themselves with the belief that they can become holy while willfully violating even one of God's requirements. The commission of a known sin silences the witnessing voice of the Spirit and separates the soul from God. Surrender is all or nothing, and it's all at once. For most of my sincere Christian life, I failed dramatically. I wanted to enjoy prayer. I wanted to relish God, to spend time with Him in His Word. I wanted to be a, a powerful witness for Him. I wanted to get victory over my besetting sins, but that's not what happened. That was not my experience for the first 30 years after my baptism. And there's this wonderful pa passage in the book of James, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Isn't that an incredible promise? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Wonderful promise. It didn't work. It didn't work. I tried resisting the devil. And you know what he did? He didn't flee. He kept on pounding away at me until he got through. He laughed in my face, kept on pounding away. And I, I just remember saying to myself, why do I even try? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But notice something about this passage that I'm sharing with you here. See those three dots at the beginning? That means that I've left something out. And that something is critical to this passage. We're going to come back there in just a minute. Late in life, I began to learn about surrender, what it really means in practical terms in my life. And I, the more I began to understand surrender, the more I began to realize that I had never actually succeeded in giving God all my choices. I had always held back a little bit. I had never actually succeeded in letting him be king of my life. And so I began to pray and ask God to help me to truly give him all of my choices in every area of the life, in my life. And he finally succeeded. For the, for the first time in my life, 30 years after my baptism, I knelt down and I said to God, I said, God, this is the first time I'm doing this, but I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to be king of my life. I want you to have all my choices. I want to give you every second of my time, every synapse of my brain, every cell of my body, every cent of my money, every single part of me in every area of my life all the time. And immediately... After making that all-or-nothing commitment to Jesus, I began to experience power in my life. I began to experience miraculous things. Overnight, I learned to enjoy prayer and to relish it, even though all my life it had been a struggle, one of those things that I knew I should do, but I really didn't enjoy it. You know, Jesus could pray all night and look forward to doing it again. I had problems praying for 10 minutes at a time. But 
But when I surrendered my life to God, He transformed overnight my prayer experience. Now, I'm not saying that He will automatically transform every area in our life, but He will do supernatural miracles in our life starting right away, and He will continue that as a process of sanctification day by day as we stay surrendered to Him. That is the power of conversion. My, my love for prayer did not come because I finally figured out how prayer works. It wasn't because of a prayer seminar or a new prayer technique. My love for prayer was a direct result of conversion. Period. It was the Holy Spirit changing my heart and my mind because of surrender. And I also began to experience supernatural power over sin. I began to say to the devil, no. And he would say, okay, and flee. So what happened? Why is it that all of a sudden now I was able to to resist the devil and he fled from me? Well, look at this verse again, James 4, 7. Notice the part that I left out. Submit Therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. My friends, there is a very important order in this passage. You cannot start in the middle. It has to begin with submission to God. And then we can resist the devil, and then the devil will flee from us. That is the only way it works. When the soul surrenders itself to Christ, a new power takes possession of the new heart. A change is wrought which man can never accomplish for himself. It is a supernatural work bringing a supernatural element into the human nature. The soul that is yielded to Christ becomes his own fortress. Wouldn't you love your life to be God's own fortress, which he holds in a revolted world, and he intends that no authority shall be known in it but his own. A soul thus kept in possession by the heavenly agencies is impregnable to the assaults of Satan. We're talking about supernatural, miraculous power, victory over sin. But unless we do yield ourselves to the control of Christ, we shall be dominated by the, the wicked one. My friends, in my own personal experience, I can attest to both sides of that story. I, have, I can attest to the fact that if you don't yield yourself to Christ, you will be dominated by the wicked one. And I can attest to the fact that if you finally do surrender your life wholly to God, unreservedly, unresistingly, unrelentingly, that God will become supernatural, powerful in your life. So, that is a little bit about surrender, definition of surrender. And I'd like to have in this, this discussion a, a real quick how to surrender. In fact, I'd like to share with you the one minute guide to surrender. This may be useful to you. Perhaps you've never actually surrendered your life wholly to God and you want to do it and you want to know how. Or maybe you have, but, does, but through time that commitment has slipped away and you want to recommit your life to God. Or maybe you have a friend or neighbor who wants to know about how to give themselves to Jesus. And this is the one-minute guide that you can always share with anybody. This is how it works. You come to God in prayer and you say, Lord, I know that I need to surrender. I have to. It's the only way. I want your Holy Spirit to be in control of my life. But Lord, I'm just not willing. I'm just not willing. I have all these choices that I just don't want to give up. That's okay, you can tell God that because He knows that already, right? You say, Lord, I want to, but I'm not willing. But, Lord, I'm willing to be made willing. That's one thing we can say. Lord, I'm willing to be made willing. But you know what? In some cases, even like in my case, that really wasn't true. I wasn't willing to be made willing. And so if that's the case, that's okay. Just step back and say, Lord, I'm really not willing to be made willing, but... I'm willing to be made willing to be made willing to be made willing to be made willing. Go back as far as you need to until you can, you can say, Lord, with my power of choice, I am telling you that I want you to work powerfully in me to really make me willing because only you can do that. Keep praying that prayer. That is a prayer that God will answer. Always. That is a prayer that God longs to answer. And if you keep 
praying that prayer. Keep pressing the Lord on this issue. Keep this before him and constantly in your mind. Keep praying that prayer and he will answer it until you become surrendered. So besides that prayer, there's some other things that you and I can do. So that was the one minute guide. Now let's go and look at a little bit more things. Things that we can do to collaborate with God in the surrender process. The first thing we can do is repent, right? Repentance is a very foundation principle of the Christian life. Repentance is that, that, um, that uh, distaste for sin, that horror of sin, that desire to be freed from sin. And we go to God and we say, Lord, I am wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I need you to be almighty God in, in me. I repent in the dust and the ashes and pray that you will forgive me and um, take over my life. That's, that repentance uh, pushes us into the arms of Jesus as our only hope. The second thing we can do is learn about surrender. When I first realized that surrender was an issue in my life, I began to read the New Testament over again for the gazillionth time. And this time I asked myself, for every passage that I read, what does this passage tell me about surrender? Practical questions. What is surrender? What does it look like in practical terms of my life? How can I become surrendered? How can I stay surrendered? How can I even know if I am surrendered? These are all important questions. And so we can learn about surrender and God can use that learning to help us to actually get to the point where we are willing and able. The third thing that we can do is count the costs. Counting the costs simply means looking at our life and saying, what would my life be like if I really gave God all my choices? You know, it's like going through your week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, all the way, you know, all seven days and saying, what would my life look like if I gave God all my choices? What would my free time look like if I gave God all my choices? What would my diet look like if I gave God all my choices? What would my words be? What would my actions be? What would my job look like? What would my relationship with my family look like? What are the choices that I'm not willing to give up? That's called counting the costs. And then when we recognize those, we can take those to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, here's one of those things. I'm just not willing. But Lord, I'm willing to be made willing. Another thing that we can do is we can embrace change. We can recognize that when we give ourselves wholly to God, He's going to make dramatic, sometimes dramatic, changes in our lives. And change is good. We should embrace change. We should recognize that change is important. That change is going to transform our life. And we need our life to be transformed. That's part of the sanctification process. Sanctification can't happen without change. And so embrace change, recognize that it's good, and even though sometimes change is hard, even though sometimes change um, pushes us to the limits, takes us out of our comfort zone, this change is good. And lastly, another thing we can do is spend quality and quantity time with Jesus. My friends, I hope that each one of us has a time and a place every day where we can spend quantity and quality time with Jesus. A time and a place every day where each one of us can spend quantity and quality time with Jesus. And I know that there's so many excuses why that's not possible. Well, I have young kids, it's just no possible. They're, they're up before I am and they're always screaming. Or I have a job that, that begins really early and I get back late. Or a thousand different things. I've got to study for an exam or whatever. My friends, God is the Almighty God. If you go to Him and say, Lord, I need a time and a place where I can spend quantity and quality time with you. Do you think He can help you with that? You think He can help you with that? God longs to. He will if you let him. So that's a little bit about some of the things that we can do to collaborate with God in the surrender process. Obviously, it's going to be God that does it, but it's going to be us by our power of choice that lets him. How do we stay dead? We recognize that once we become surrendered does not necessarily mean that we're going to be staying surrendered automatically. We don't believe in once surrendered, always surrendered, do we? So how can we stay dead? Sometimes staying dead can even be harder than getting there in the first place because time is on the devil's side. 
right? The devil will constantly try to insinuate self in our life, day by day by day. And sometimes it's so easy and so natural to just grab onto that and to keep um, letting the devil do that until we fall out of surrender and hardly even realize what's happened. So we need ways that we can actually keep uh, our surrender from settling so that we can stay close to Jesus. There are those who for a time are successful in the struggle against their selfish desire for pleasure and ease. They are sincere and earnest, but grow weary of protracted effort, of daily death, of ceaseless turmoil. Indolence seems inviting, death to self repulsive, and they close their drowsy eyes and fall under the power of temptation instead of resisting it. That is what we must fight every day. That natural, easy, pleasant tendency to close our drowsy eyes and to walk out of that surrender relationship with Jesus. The Christian life is like an airplane. You know, airplanes are one of the few means of transportation that does not go backwards. Have you ever thought about that? And it can't even stop. I mean, trains can stop and go backwards. Boats can stop and go backwards. Um, All kinds of modes of transportation can stop and go backwards, but a plane cannot. In fact, if a plane slows down too much, it falls out of the sky. And the Christian life is the same way. It has to be going continually forward and upward, or it will fall out of the sky. It's a continual, daily process of growing. So here are some practical things that we can do to keep um, surrender from, from, to keep us ourselves from s- settling and walking out of the surrender relationship with Jesus. First of all, we can continue to plead with God to keep us surrender because that pleading with God, that got us to surrender in the first place. And obviously it's going to be only God that can do it. And so we need to keep on pleading with him to keep us in that relationship. And by the way, why do we plead for God to keep us in surrender when we know that he wants to do that anyway? Are we trying to convince him to do that? No. When we plead with God to keep us in surrender, we are actually um, imp- increasing our own desire for it. And when, we, and when that desire gets great enough, God is able to answer that prayer because we really, really want it and let him do whatever it takes. Secondly, continue to spend that quality and quantity time with Jesus every day. Make sure that you, you nail down that time and place and that you keep that appointment with God every day. Third, have a healthy paranoia against the devil and the world. My friends, it's okay to be paranoid if the devil really is out to get you. And he is. The devil is trying to use the world to get each one of us back out of that surrender relationship. So be paranoid. Recognize that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Have a, um, a, um, a constant healthy tension with worldliness and with the devil. Number four, avoid rationalization. Rationalization is simply trying to make our will into God's will. (laughs) Right? We want to do what we want to do. We want to find some way of making it God's will. That is a very dangerous and unhealthy thing. And you know what? If we try to do that, we will succeed. At least we will think we will succeed. And we will find a way to do anything we want to do. And we will walk out of surrender by doing that. Number five, practice godly self-denial especially for the good of others. This self-denial keeps us from settling. It helps us to to, uh, keep depending on God, to constantly fight that that, uh, desire to close our drowsy eyes. Self-denial, especially for the good of others, is one of the most powerful tools in the uh, surrender toolbox to stay surrendered. And lastly, keep on praising God. Praising God remembers what he's done for us. Praising God is how we say, Lord, the miracles that you have performed in my life are just 
beyond my imagination. Thank you so much. That praising helps us to keep more fresh in our mind what God has done for us. We don't want to lose that vision of what God has done for us. We don't want to lose that picture of how wonderfully God has transformed our life because if we, if we don't keep that fresh in our minds, it'll get stale and old and we will then settle and close our drowsy eyes. So these are some of the things. This is not a comprehensive list. These are some of the things, practical ways, that you and I can cooperate with God in staying surrendered. Remember that in the end, the basic principle of the Christian life is this. Only God can do it. Only you and I can let him. Surrender is how we let him. Surrender is how we let God be almighty God in us. Surrender is drowning in his will so that he can have his way. Surrender is a spirit-inspired, spirit-enabled, love-motivated commitment, settled commitment to give God every choice in every area of our life all the, all the time. Surrender is throwing ourselves with utter abandon into the arms of the God who loves us. An all-or-nothing, all-at-once commitment to Him. We are told that the Lord has no reserve power with which to influence man. Isn't that an incredible statement? The Lord has no reserve power with, with which to influence man. Do you realize that God is right now doing everything in His power and love and wisdom to influence every man, woman, and child on this planet? And do you know that the only thing that will keep him from succeeding in our life is our choice, our power of choice? By our power of choice, we can stop the Almighty God in his tracks as he battles to bless us. My friends, put that power of choice into the hands of God. Surrender your choices to God. Let him do everything he wants to do, and I guarantee it will be good because his way is always good. It's exquisitely good. It's excruciatingly good. God is battling to bless us, and the only thing standing in his way is us. So let's let him. Let's do whatever it takes. Let's let God do whatever it takes to get us wholly committed, unreservedly, unresistingly, unrelentingly committed to him. My friends, we have looked at just a quick executive summary of surrender and what it means. I have a whole series on this subject called Delighting in the Almighty. And I'd like to encourage you to go to the website, delighting.org, and look at this series, 10, 11, 10 or 11 uh, programs that talk about each of these different aspects of surrender, what it is, how it works in practical terms. I share my own testimony about how God gave me victory over some of the practical problems in my own life. And I would like to encourage you to go to the website, check out those videos, and learn all you can about surrender, because that is part of what it takes to become wholly committed to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, thank you so much again for surrender. We just cannot thank you enough for it. The privilege of being able to give you our life, the privilege of being able to have that peace that passes all understanding to know that you are having your way. Oh, Father, there is nothing better than that. We thank you so much. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for his love. Thank you so much for his intercession. Thank you so much for the Holy Spirit that works powerfully in us to surrender us to you, to conquer self. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for all of your blessings in so many different ways. We give ourselves to you. We thank you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.